Hi, I'm Linda van Tolberg and welcome to another edition of Nacho, where we feature the main stories and interviews that we had in the past week on Biz News. This week's politics-dominated news headlines with the expose of the Busasa files and Paul O'Sullivan's latest turning call to fight corruption, coupled with the news that House Democrats in the United States are putting steps in place to impeach President Donald Trump. We also look at what is happening at WeWork, one of the latest unicorns running into trouble with an IPO. And there is an interview with a Zulu woman who is making a success out of sugarcane farming with the help of a land restitution plan and local farmers. A lot of questions have been raised about Basasa since the untimely death of the former CEO of the company, Gavin Watson. His family believes in his innocence and is questioning the testimony of Angelo Agrizzi before the Zondo Commission, who has painted a picture of a corrupt organization that was handing out bribes for contracts on an industrial scale. Watson's nephew, Jared, has been gathering evidence in an effort to clear Gavin's name. He says Agrisi's story is more about corporate espionage than state capture, and he released some of the documents to business that his uncle was planning to give to the revenue service. It actually hasn't been submitted yet. Um, obviously, Gavin passed away the day before he was to submit it, um, so um, we're still trying to understand what channels to go through for the file to make its way to SARS. As I said to you as well, um, what, what you have uploaded isn't the complete file. It's what I'd call the, um, the chronology elements of the file, which explains Agritzi's timeline um, of involvement with Bosasa. Now, it's a significant portion of the file, but there are other more specific um, uh, tax issues that are also uh, dealt with in the file um, that that isn't, I would say, the part of the chronology of it. So it's not the complete file that was to be submitted to SARS, but it is a large portion of it. Where did you get this information from? Well, I've just been doing an investigation for the better part of this year. Um, and, you know, I would I would speak to people within the organization, say, look, yeah, um, these are things that we're looking for, going through company files, doing my own, um, you know, research on the Internet, um, using, you know, whatever – capabilities I have just to try and accumulate documentation. And then a significant portion of it, believe it or not, was actually handed to me by Angelo Gritzi last year, August. So certain emails and documents, when I saw him last year, August, um, to understand why he had written this email um, that he had sent to the press that was then published by Adrian Besson, um, uh, he was he just started shoveling documentation to me and I just kept the documentation. I never thought anything would, I never realized, I never read through it at the time. I never thought anything would come of it, but that actually stoked the fire to understand, Oh, hang on a sec. Something else is happening here. Um, so, so that was the beginning process. For instance, if I may go on two emails, um, that he provided me with, you'll actually see in, in the files that you uploaded, there were two emails from the 7th of March. Um, both those emails, the name at the top says Angelo Gritzi, and when it was printed, those emails were handed to me by him personally, and that's why I have them. Um, and and the interesting part of that is that's, that's on the 7th of March 2018. At 10 in the morning, he emails the auditors of Bosasa, Darcy Herman, to make disparaging remarks about the company and its employees. And then 12 hours later, he then email on the same day, he emails the group legal advisor and says, uh, look here, I would like to come in and turn around the business with other past employees that have left the business. So it just shows his modus operandi of 
of he threatens the company and then offers to be the savior. Um, so, and which has been consistent, I think it reads quite easily through the documentation that you will see that that's what he consistently does. Um, he threatens and then asks to take over to be the savior. Um, so, yeah, that's the context there. He, he sounds like a, a bit of a mastermind. Um, you, you do mention or you do show in the documentation chess sets mm. uh, that have been made. Does he, yeah. like, does he like chess? Does, does a greasy see himself as, uh, as a puppet master in a way? Yeah, I think he does. I think, I, think, um, I think that's how he likes to present himself. Remember, in my view, um, we're dealing with someone that um, has an obsession with, with, with power and being perceived to be in control. I mean, generally, why would a person own five Ferraris? It's not to drive them. It's so that people can see what you own, that people can, you know, that you can be lauded, um, that you can seem like, for lack of a better term, a big deal. Um, so, so he, that's what he loves is, I believe is, is the power, the control. Um, you know, I think he, when he was retrenched from the business, that's what made him potentially go, uh, insane for lack of a better term is the fact that he was previously, um, the man that effectively controlled four and a half to 6,000 employees. And now he, he, that, 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 that position of control was taken away from him. Um, so, so for me, I think that's the context in understanding his character. And from, I mean, you say the chess perspective, you know, he would have chess pieces made. I mean, I, d- I don't know if I think I might have shown them to you. He had chess pieces made of of uh, of Zondor. He had chess pieces made of President Ramaphosa. He had chess pieces made of President Zuma. He had chess pieces made of Gavin Watson. He had chess pieces made of a number of people. And it, it's it's almost like some it's some strange game to him, you know, that he controls all these parts. As I mean, as I said to you, I, and I think I would have shown you, I actually have those chess pieces. He, when I was at his house, he actually gave them to me. So we we kept that as a part of evidence as well, which isn't, I guess, in the file because it's a physical chess piece. But um, it's just part of his his games, you know, he, which which he would gloat about. Where is this going to now? Because it does appear as though the public still certainly judge from the emails and the responses I get on social media, just simply by putting your side of the story, that there's, there are many people who don't believe it, who believe that I've been duped by you and presumably you've been duped by Gavin. Uh, where, where does it all end? Alec, uh, in the court of public opinion, I don't know if it ever ends. So I can't say where this is going. And I think, I think, you know, it's, I was talking to someone yesterday, I was saying it's called confirmation bias in finance is generally people go out there looking for information that will support their current view. They don't go out there looking for the truth. So I can't say what some, if someone's presented with, with definitive evidence, will anyone change their view on us? I don't think so because that's generally not how humanity works. Um, where it's going, I can't say. All I can do is provide, and it's the exact same thing I said when I spoke to Adrian Besson. I said, look, Adrian, um, we can be cordial with each other, but, but I can't, I'm not, we don't have a relationship built over time, so I can't trust anything you're saying to me, and I don't expect him to, to trust anything I'm saying to him. Um, I don't think the public should believe anything I say necessarily just because I'm saying it. They should go out there, look at the information that's on hand, and judge for themselves. They mustn't listen to the opinion of, 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 of any opinion of mine. I'm, I guess I'm not objective in the sense that I'm perceived to be subjective, given that I am Gavin's nephew. However, they shouldn't uh, listen to what I've got to say, and believe me because I'm saying it, they should listen to what I've got to say, 
go have a look at the evidence that is now on hand and judge for themselves. In our beloved country, we're all becoming impatient that the process of bringing people to justice for corruption is taking so slowly. There was a Zapiro cartoon depicting the slow movement of prosecutions, which he felt was slower than a sloth, a slug and grass growing. The man who's not letting any grass grow under his feet is Paul O'Sullivan from Forensics for Justice, who has tackled big names such as McKinsey and Hogan Lovells. The man now in his scope is Jose Trinidade, who is alleged to have siphoned money off a company called Tuvalu Construction Project, which was set up to tender for ESCOM. Alec asked Paul what motivates him. Forensics for Justice, as you know, is a charity, and we've recognised that the um, criminal justice system in South Africa was captured a good few years ago, and it's still captured um, by the underworld, and therefore we've decided to continue and expose these cases, and we publish it all on our website. Um, and, you know, some of the cases we have been able to get successful arrests or prosecutions started at least um, and a lot of I mean the Sunday Times you mentioned I gave them seven days notice to retract all three stories and seven days later they retracted all three stories so I think um, you know our aim is to keep exposing the rot and keep holding people accountable yeah, well, that's that's a, a good result in that case. But in this Trinidadi case, it looks like you're going to be going to court a lot. That's expensive in terms of time, let alone legal fees. Yes, well, up till now, I've been defending myself. Um, and I can tell you I saw a very white-faced um, um, accuser in court this morning and looking very worried indeed because he knows that I want to get him into court so that I can then put questions to him while he's under oath. And he, he either will incriminate himself or he's going to have to tell the court he's exercising his constitutional right to remain silent. And the court can then draw their own conclusions from that. Let's just say that you had the opportunity to cross-question this uh, Trinidadi, who you've, you have documentary evidence is corrupt and has been corrupted people, corrupting people at Eskom. If that were to happen... Would that be enough for the police to arrest him on the spot, or how does the criminal justice system work? Well, as I've said to you, you know, in a, in a real world, a normal world, um, he should have been arrested already. The evidence is overwhelmingly against him. Um, but as you know, the criminal justice system in South Africa is captured, and you've got more chance of seeing instant justice if you steal a loaf of bread from uh, pick and pay um, there will be instant justice if you're caught on that. But if you steal billions of rand from ESCOM, um, for some reason, the paralysis in the criminal justice system results in these people getting away with it. So where are we in the whole fight against uh, getting rid of the corrupt element in South Africa? Well, we, know, we know the president has made it his top priority. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we've been, obviously, we've been in constant communication with the president's office and with the new um, head of the NPA. I, I, I wrote to Shamila and I said, Shamila, um, you're in charge of the NPA, but you're not in control of the NPA and you won't be until you get rid of these people. And I gave her a list of names of people that needed to be uh, shipped out. What did she do? Well, you know, it's work in progress. You know, we have this Labor Relations Act. Um, the criminal justice system says that you're innocent 
until you're found guilty, unless you're Paul O'Sullivan getting on a plane and having used your Irish passport, um, in which case you get swift justice and you get dragged off the plane and detained and tortured for four days. But where are we, Paul, from, from your assessment of the, the changes? When Cyril Ramaphosa was still Deputy President in Davos 2017, he said that these were the things that were going to change. Uh, sorry, it was Davos 2018. It was after the December uh, elective conference. These were the things that, that were the priorities. The number one priority was corruption. How much progress has he made? Well, I think we're getting there slowly but surely, Alec, you know. Um, one can liken our criminal justice system to a battleship and we were heading off at full steam ahead in the wrong direction um, we're certainly no longer going in that direction but it takes uh, I think they say it takes 16 kilometers for a battleship to do a 180 degree turn and we're in the process of that 180 degree turn and I would expect probably by either later this year or middle of next year um, the system will be working a little bit more efficiently and we're going to be seeing people dragged before the courts with, with a bit of justice being meted out. I get this question often, so I'm sure you get it three times more. Why is it taking so long to put people behind bars? Yeah, as I said to you, you know, it, it's, it's a mixture of paralysis, it's a mixture of hidden agenda, and it's a mixture of the... Um, the good people having taken a back seat because they've been either fired or put out. I mean, look at people like Shadrach Sabir and Anwar Dramat, um, Sean Abrahams, uh, and, and uh, Diba and Mawebi, while they were running the NPA, they managed to persuade a lot of good prosecutors to leave. Look at Harry Nell. He's ended up going to work in private practice for, for, for AFRI Forum. If he was still running um, at the NPA. And in the U.S., that has been destabilizing financial markets with its trade war with China for a while, a huge salvo has been fired by the opposition House Democrats, who have decided that they are going to try to impeach President Donald Trump. It relates to a phone conversation he had with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. It is alleged that he tried to pressure Zelensky to investigate Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden and his family. Bloomberg's White House reporter Justin Sink speculates on what the chances are of a successful impeachment. I think obviously a lot of Democratic uh, lawmakers are expressing outrage over uh, what they see as the, uh, the president acting inappropriately by asking uh, Ukraine to participate in this investigation of, of Joe Biden. Uh, the president and his allies, though, have kind of insisted throughout this process that the president didn't do anything wrong. They say uh, that it's normal operating procedure or within the bounds of acceptability for the president to uh, push for an investigation when there's possible wrongdoing. And they make the argument that the, the five-page transcript shows that the president didn't necessarily link uh, his freezing of foreign aid or even foreign aid generally with the Biden investigation, although he does discuss both topics on the, on the call. And Justin, isn't you know isn't simply the fact that the the president asked uh, President Trump asked the uh, leader of a foreign nation to uh, potentially interfere in a U.S. election? Isn't that in and of itself uh, problematic and maybe even enough to support impeachment? I mean, that's certainly the argument that the critics of the president are making today and, and that, uh, you know, Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, have 
uh, said are, are grounds for impeachment. Now, the, the president says and, uh, and has defended himself by arguing uh, that there was possible misconduct by, by Joe Biden. That hasn't been sort of substantiated. All of our reporting indicates that uh, Joe Biden made the call to, to get rid of uh, a prosecutor in Ukraine, uh, not based on his son's financial interests, but uh, based on the policy uh, within the Obama administration, but but the White House is going to make the argument that that this was just sort of uh, an attempt by this White House to to address possible corruption. Have we heard anything from Republican leaders? Uh, Republican leaders so far have have sort of downplayed the release of this and uh, are, are making the argument that Democrats are sort of uh, singularly focused on impeaching the president. It's it's a very similar. Um, approach to what we heard in the aftermath of uh, the Mueller report coming out, where, again, the president engaged in some conduct that um, was certainly outside the, the sort of norms that we, we expect, but didn't rise to the level of illegality. And, and so they're, they're making the argument that Democrats are uh, pushing too hard for this impeachment issue. So, Justin, many observers have suggested that the more damning uh, piece of evidence may be the uh, whistleblowers report per se. Is there a sense of when, if that will be released and will it be released in its entirety? Yeah, so we're not entirely sure when the public will get a, a chance to look at or if the public will get a chance to look at this whistleblower report, but there is an expectation that, that Congress, which will, will at least in a classified setting, be able to review uh, some, if not all, of the whistleblower report. So uh, we we may get additional details that can help give a, a bigger picture of, of what the Trump White House was up to and what the president was up to uh, beyond this this specific call transcript uh, as soon as tomorrow. Justin, what's the sense of next steps here? Yeah, so uh, I think we're looking at two big kind of events on the very short-term horizon. One is the president is actually meeting with the Ukrainian president uh, later this afternoon, so I'm sure he's going to field questions and, and talk about this then, and especially at a, a press conference scheduled for 4 p.m. at the end of the United Nations uh, later this afternoon. So we're going to hear a lot from the president later today as he tries to explain his actions. And then, of course, we've got these congressional hearings going forward uh, in the next couple of days where, where more information, particularly from the, the mouth of the whistleblower, may, may start to come out. Justin, if we look at the market response, initially there was a leg lower in the S&P and NASDAQ. That has bounced back since. So basically people in the market seem to be suggesting this is not that big of a deal, or at least it doesn't move the needle materially more toward impeachment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's obviously a lot of political attention on this entire uh, controversy, but the basic math hasn't changed here in Washington, which is that Republicans continue to control uh, the United States Senate, and that there's nowhere near the votes that you'd need to actually remove Donald Trump from office. So while Democrats might want to sort of send a political message that they find this behavior to be unacceptable, uh, something that would actually remove the president from office and thereby potentially change policy and, and impact markets uh, is not something that, that uh, seems likely at this point. This week, WeWork has become the latest unicorn to push its CEO out of the door before a planned listing. Adam Newman agreed to step down. He was barely down the staircase when the company announced that they would be selling his $6 million Gulfstream jet. Our Alec sampled the luxury of the short-term office rental company in London, and he shares his views on WeWork with David Shapiro on what is not quite working at the moment. He's kicked out. You know, he's gone. Boom. Finished. Founder. Exactly right. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. 
We saw it with Uber as well. Yeah. Boom. Management Travis, gone. Travis Kavelnik. Yeah. Mm. Didn't uh, didn't make the the IPO. And you know how blind are investors? He cashed in seven hundred million dollars <laughs> of his stake, like a month before they were supposed to go public. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> well, of course. I mean, that was a sure sign. But I think the the other. I'm not, I don't like those kind of companies. I don't like, when I say I don't like them, I love what they stand for. I love the innovation. I love the entrepreneurship. But I'm like to, you know, there's an old saying that the first uh, pioneers got scalped. And the money, you know, when everybody moved west, it was the people who came in the fourth and fifth waves that actually made the money. And uh, it's the same thing uh, even here in South Africa with the gold miners. Those who came later and picked up the pieces were the ones who made the money. And I like to watch the businesses to see how they operate, wait for them to start making a bit of cash, and then uh, and then invest. But I love the stories. But uh, you know, this is the turmoil you get with innovative business. Bloomberg's technology columnist Shira Oveda says Newman will remain influential in WeWork. I mean, it, it does look. It does change things, right? Uh, because he was one element, a significant element of both WeWork's success and ultimately its um, kind of self-dealing and bad management oversight and business model. So changing horses does matter, but at the same time, everybody who enabled WeWork to get to the point where it is today is still there. That includes Newman himself. He is a significant shareholder, remains a significant shareholder. He's going to be on the board, right? He's a non-executive chairman. All the investors are still there, the bankers, the lawyers, uh, all the executives. The company is now being run by these two insiders. So WeWork has a lot of questions to answer about both its business model and the structure of the company. And that's being those decisions are being made by more or less the same people who were there all along. So, sure. One of the key figures for me is Masayoshi San uh, of SoftBank. Um, is there any sense of how committed he and the fund is to this company, given some of the turmoil we've seen? I think that's a key question, and I think we still don't really have a good answer uh, as to what made Son and SoftBank apparently turn against WeWork literally at the last minute, right in the last um, few days, it seems. And I, I at least noticed that in WeWork's statement yesterday about Adam Newman's departure and the changes in the management team there, SoftBank was not mentioned. They were not quoted. So SoftBank has not said anything. But look, this company needs money urgently, and SoftBank is certainly one of the more obvious candidates to provide that financing. And there was some reporting today from Bloomberg and others that SoftBank is looking at potentially additional um, loans and an equity infusion, either from SoftBank or from uh, real estate. Shira, I think it, this takes us to a broader conversation about valuations because WeWork sort of uh, comes after the Uber issues and as a ton of money pours into tech startups pretty broadly. And I'm just wondering, what are you hearing from people in terms of how much venture capitalists are sort of gut-checking themselves and what they're willing to accept in terms of private valuations for some of what they're investing in? You know, the the venture capital industry has been in a really weird place the last few years. I think almost everybody who's in the business of backing technology startups will say that there's too much money sloshing around chasing too few good companies and that has made valuations get too big and companies get funded 
uh, excessively. But no one is no one is willing to say that they're part of the problem, right? That it's always the other guy. And the other guy uh, recently has been SoftBank with this hundred billion dollar vision fund that they've poured into companies like WeWork and Uber and others. So there is definitely too much money sloshing around, chasing too few good companies, and um, and yet I don't know that anything is going to change in the near term because of what's happened at WeWork, because there's always this tendency to say, well, WeWork is kind of a one-off, that was a SoftBank thing, they overinflated this company, or Uber was a one-off thing, everything is a one-off thing, that's somebody else's fault. Uh, I certainly hope that in the corners of, of Silicon Valley where venture capitalists live and work that there's been some rethinking about what they personally need to do to prevent companies like WeWork from happening again, whether that's overcapitalization or entrenching too much, too much um, uh, power. And finally, land restitution is an issue that is silently simmering with the government's plans to push ahead with the controversial policy. But is there a way in which it could be done that satisfies the call for land restitution and farmers' worries that land used for the cultivation of food will be nationalized? A KwaZulu-Natal woman who has defied patriarchy in the province, Nonchalantla Gomere, thinks she has found the recipe with a collaborative approach. We can't do it on our own. You know, in 2017, when I managed to buy my own farm, I took it through land bank. You know, I'm paying that bond, Linda. You know, it's, it's, it's tight like this. I can't even pay my son's school fees. I have to go and work somewhere else to be able, because there's no money, in fact, because all the money that you're getting from the farm, you need to put back in the farm. Yes. What more do you think the Department of Environmental Affairs or, or Agriculture you know, can do? They need to take us to trainings. That's what we need the most. We need trainings. We need finances. You know, with this land, you know, with the sugar act that we have now, we cannot, we cannot sell our sugar like, you know, like as normal as the, how it used to be before. Because you get all these export sugars. Oh gosh, you know, it's so hectic. I can't even mention it. But you know, it's, it's so hectic in the way that you can, we can't even afford to pay our own labor. And yet, Linda, you know, for me, I'm employing like 25 people at the moment. Most of them, they needed those jobs, but I cannot be able to pay all of them every month. You know, I need to like every month make six, seven, five, get six, seven, five, you know, stop the other workers, get another one, because you know, you can't just cover them all. And this is where they're depending for their salaries. It's a tough life, farming. It's a, it's a, it, is, it, it is a tough life, but if you give, you put your mind to it, it works. I see. So we just need that little bit of assistance here and there. Luckily, Mintiro came, Coca-Cola came, and they assisted us. So for now, it's so much better. I employed 50 people at the moment that are working in my farm, you know, with the Mintiro Foundation finances. So I was able to employ like 50 people. I'm doing planting. I'm replanting almost half of the farm this season, So which will bring more jobs to, to, to my neighbors and it will bring more uh, production to the farmers' way. Well, you, you're first of all a woman, and you're in an area that is quite traditional, KwaZulu-Natal. Have you found a bias because you are a woman being a farmer? You know, um, it's, it's for us, it's, it's, not that, it's not that bad, because we already have so much millet that we supply with sugar, you know. So, yeah, but... Being the only female, which is young, my age, you know, it's become so difficult when we're going for meetings. I'm the only, I'm the only female there. I'm the only young one. And yeah, so yeah, but I got used to it.
Yeah. There's also a lot of pressure on white farmers in South Africa. Everybody is saying that they're not doing enough to help. Have you found that in, in your area? Are there white you know, farmers? In my area, you know, mm. in my area, I'm surrounded by two uh, whites. Mr. Rob Taylor, if you don't mind me mentioning the name. You know, he's so good. He supports me in every way. I don't want to lie to you. He supports, he supports me. He's there. He's there for me. You know, if you need those advices, if you need those happy side, you know, when, when, when is the right time, Mr. Taylor, to spray? When is the li- right time to, uh, to, to plant? Come look at my fields. Uh, there's something that I don't see. He's very helpful. Both of them, in fact, there's two of them. It's him, Mr. Mark Taylor, and his son. Uh, they're very helpful. I don't want to let them go farms. I'm surrounded by them. So they assist me every way possible. So do you think that's a good example of how land restitution could be done in the future? Yes, it is. It is. It, that's what we need. We need them because, you know, for me, my neighbors, they've got plus minus 40 years experience. What more can you ask for? You know, these days, if you're going to ask somebody to come and assist you or mentor you, you will have to pay plus minus 100,000 a month. So, we, but, but if you've got people like that supporting structures near you, it, it, it becomes easy. Are you planning to expand? Do you want to try to buy more farms? Yes, you know, I'm expanding. Even at the moment, I just got an opportunity with uh, Tonga Trillet. They've given me another land to run so that because they've, they've seen my work, they've seen what I've done. You know, I've taken the farm that I have now in 2017, and it was producing 600 tons of sugar. But at the moment, I'm sitting at 3,500 tons. So they, they've given me another land in Tonga. I'm going to be busy with that. And I'm looking forward to it. So in the next five years, I'm looking at myself producing over 100,000 tons of sugarcane. And that has been the stories featured on BizNews in a nutshell. There are fuller versions of the interviews on our website. Speak to you again next week.